0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American Story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. It's been a long time coming, but we're finally here. <laughs> I, 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 I was not intending on the Dr. Seuss <laughs> setup there. It just kind of came out that way. Look, uh, it's been a while since the last episode. Um, I'll be honest, some of it is just life stuff, but also wanted to. Allow for numbers to develop for the exit poll data to kind of settle a bit. And then, you know, we've had, obviously, since our last episode, we had an election. Uh, We've had a series of sham lawsuits. We've had a bunch of ridiculous democracy undermining bluster from the man who's sworn to uphold our constitution. But today. Uh, the day I'm recording, Monday, December 14th, the electors are going to solidify what we've known for well over a month now, which is that uh, Joe Biden is the next president of the United States. Kamala Harris is the next vice president of the United States. In this episode, we're going to talk about how they did it, uh, particularly the role that faith played. Uh, and, and look, we, we took something of a risk doing this podcast. When we started this podcast, I felt like faith was going to play a important role in this election. It had played a really important role in 2016. As I've argued in this podcast, faith has played a pretty central role in every election this century, every American presidential election this century. But maybe this was going to be the one where faith sort of played out, uh, where, where, where faith um, wasn't going to be such a, such a big deal, and we were going to be on the hook for recording a whole bunch of episodes about something that really didn't have a whole lot of salience. Of course, that's not what we saw. Uh, We saw a presidential election in which a faith was at the very center. And what I want to do in this episode is, is just recap a bit of how I think the campaigns understood faith going in. Some of the key points that we saw as the race unfolded, and then we're going to talk about how it showed up in uh, in the vote. So uh, hang with me. This is the last episode of the Faith 2020 podcast. Uh We'll get weepy near the end, I'm sure, but let's try and put our uh, our, our business caps on. Uh, for For the beginning of this episode because we have some serious stuff to unpack. And we'll start that right after the break. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. We're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Uh, we'll ask you to listen through to the end of this episode. Uh, even after I... You know, get to unpacking the results because near the end of this episode, I'm, I'm gonna talk a little bit about how we can stay in touch, and also, I don't, I don't know how much I want to share, but um, this is the last episode of the Faith 2020 podcast. It's not the last episode of uh, of a podcast that I'll be doing ever, and so I'm excited about what's to come in 2021 that that kind of rhyme i mean i know that wasn't a perfect rhyme but that kind of rhyme i don't know what's going i don't know what's going on with me to, to, today that everything's <laughs> yeah. all right we we got to let's keep this on the tracks all right so as i noted what i what i want to do in this segment is just recap sort of what i feel uh, both campaigns sort of went into this thing understanding and then and then we'll we'll unpack the results uh, i I've, I've argued pretty consistently that the trump campaign understood very clearly the role faith was going to have to play for them if they were going to pull out a victory and that is that religion was going to have to be a sort of they were going to need religion to work for them in a sort of a maximal kind of kind of way. Very similarly to how religion worked for them in 2016. They accomplished this in, in 2016 in a number of ways. One was exceptionally bold appeals and direct appeals. Uh, th- there was no sort of I mean it was 2016 as as in 2020, it was blunt Messaging. If you want to be able to worship in America, you better vote vote for Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the one who's going to save the church. All this stuff we we heard all of this in twenty twenty, as we uh, reported to you all over these over these episodes. But so that's what they did in twenty sixteen. What they did in twenty twenty. The other consistent aspect of their outreach was a, a, a very pervasive uh, digital campaign, the ability to reach voters that uh, hadn't turned out before, that others just did not see. And we saw, as we're going to get to in 2020, some of the turnout ex- expectations, including some of the turnout, I don't know if they were expectations on my, my part, but things I was looking out for as possibilities did not come to fruition. Big reason for that is that in terms of turnout, you know, Trump was able to keep pace with the overall growth of voters, pr- pretty much. I mean, obviously he didn't keep up enough to win. But when we talk about the demographic breakdown, strikingly similar to to 20 uh to 2016. One thing he did build on, and this again is something that we've tracked in these episodes, is as president, Trump sort of took up the the outreach to unseen voters another notch. I pointed out before, and I think we saw it in the polls. Uh, it, well, in the election results, Trump's willingness to give a platform to religious leaders that would that did not have the respectability to be lifted up by previous Republican presidents, and frankly, previous. Democratic uh, politicians, Trump really didn't care, <laughs> and by giving a platform to these kind of televangelist types to worship leaders in a in a new way, to sort of shock jock pastors and personalities that again, you know, it's not that it's not that people didn't know that they reached that these kinds of folks re- had reach. It it was that the, the the sense of respectability, the the sense of you, you know, uh, it would be beneath the office to showcase some of these folks. Trump, Trump didn't have a, any sort of concerns like like that, and it's important to note these are folks that appeal not just to conservative white voters, but these were folks that I think Trump and his team had an understanding, you know, had a appeal within pockets of uh the hispanic uh and black vote as well so all these all these things sort of played out what was different from 2016 2020 a bit i mean i mean so right so obviously a lot you know trump was an incumbent and wasn't running his sort of outsider appeal was preserved in some ways by the fact that he's such he, he's been such a abnormal president, but still you're in office for four years it's it's hard to run the same kind of uh you know campaign against the establishment that that you did in your first run so a lot a lot was different when it comes to faith here's here's the thing that was the key difference in 2016 the Clinton campaign decided to respond to Trump's bold outreach using words and people that typically hadn't been within the norm of American politics, the Clinton campaign decided to see that, let Trump do his thing, and basically use it as a foil to appeal to other voters. Basically, let Trump have the faith lane, if if he's going to claim it so hard. And they thought sort of demographically, you know, faith is receding in America. Look at the rise of the religiously disaffiliated. Look at the polls showing... Uh, you know, people don't want an evangelical president and sort of all of this stuff. And if Trump really wants to dig in there, there aren't enough of them. <laughs> there aren't enough of the kinds of people that Trump is appealing to uh, for, for him to win doing that. And, of course, Trump won doing exactly that. The Biden campaign could have made the same choice. They could have said, look, we're four years down the road. Uh, some of the demographic trends that we'd seen in 2016 have have continued demographically we're in you know uh, Democrats look even to be in even better place than in 2016 so maybe maybe just run like the same same kind of strategy maybe just throw in a little extra like Irish stuff I don't know uh that's not what they did <laughs> uh, they did not decide to cede the faith lane uh, to Donald Trump. And when it comes to rhetoric, when it comes to messaging, including some of the big opportunities, not just like micro-targeted ads, but when it comes to things like the Democratic Convention, when it comes to major speeches Biden gave down the home stretch, I'm not sure that we've seen a Democratic campaign run as aggressively on faith in this century. And that includes that includes Barack Obama's two campaigns. Remember, in terms of rhetoric and in terms of messaging. Now, when it comes to other areas of the campaign, uh, infrastructure, policy primarily, they were not as aggressive. It turns out because they won, they didn't need to be. Very few concrete policy offerings were given up during this campaign to the, uh, to any faith community. As a matter of fact, the most specific policy offering that they offered this entire campaign was this Department of Homeland Security program i think is generally a, a good idea i'm interested to uh, it's interesting to think about some of the implications of such a program but generally i think it's needed but is this Department of Homeland Security program that offers grants to houses of worship for security protections and you know i'm recording this again on monday december 14th we just got through a weekend in which primarily black churches were vandalized by white supremacists that came in to DC including Metropolitan AME which is a church that I attended with president Obama several times um re- important historic church in DC where much of sort of black leadership especially older black leadership in DC that's the church they attend so I don't know if I don't know if these these folks uh, Knew that it looks like they were just attacking any church that had Black Lives Matter signs in front of it. But the salience of Metropolitan A.M.E. being vandalized, the the historic weight of it is significant. I, I've been really disturbed by uh, to, to to see that happen, and I'm looking forward to a Department of Justice that will act quickly when these things happen. And obviously, I'm hoping. Um, that these kinds of things can be prevented, but that was the that was a major policy offered. The Biden campaign didn't adjust any of its policy positions from the Democratic primary when it came to social issues through the general. Uh, th- there, um, th- there, there wasn't a special offering, uh, sort of a special policy around Catholic schools, for instance, that I'm aware of. There wasn't uh, something even around nothing that I saw being advanced sort of to the faith community around even things like greening congregations. I mean, there just wasn't the policy specificity was not there. And as we've discussed from the very early episodes, you know, that is one lever that you think about when doing outreach. To the, to the faith community or really any other any other community and we'll we'll talk a bit more about that. But when it comes to rhetoric and messaging, you could go back to the primary and Joe Biden's op-ed at religion news service. Heck you could you could really go back as I argued in the New York Times, you could go back to the very beginning of this campaign restoring the soul of america is obviously a a deeply moral message with religious overtones just when you hear it for those with some historic sort of background they'll know that that, that phrase comes directly out of the southern christian leadership conference the organization founded by dr king led by uh led by Uh, Dr. King and later by Reverend Joseph Lowry uh, involved was, was again, as I argued in the New York Times, perhaps the most uh, distinct, explicit expression of uh, Christian values in American public life in the 20th century. And so Biden is pulling on those kinds of threads even from the beginning. And then, of course, we talked about the convention, uh, and I won't recap there. But, you know, all of this talk of, you you know, how did how did Donald Trump gain among Hispanic and black voters? Uh, You know, we didn't see this coming. Well, look, it's about an investment of time. As we talked about in the Republican convention, they they put time in what whether you were convinced by the invitation that they offered to to, uh, to voters during that convention, that kind of investment of time is going to have some kind of return. And the same goes for the Democratic convention. You take the first hour basically of your two hours on the final night of the Democratic convention to speak to faith from multiple angles in inclusive and yet sort of unafraid, sort of unapologetic kind of way, that's that's going to have a return. And I said at the time, like, I've I just never seen anything like that. Uh, I was, you know, kind of blown away by the way that they centered faith uh, during that portion of the convention. And it reaped, reaped, uh, Benefits for them when it came to folks voting. But this really continued, you know, in the final couple of months of the campaign, they were issuing press releases announcing significant ad buys specifically focused on the faith community. In other words, not just doing the ads quietly, but actually being really forward about the fact that we want these voters. We're, we're going after these voters. We, we think that we can earn their vote. We saw in some of his major speeches, his speech in Philadelphia, uh, his speech in uh, Gettysburg. We saw the president-elect, President-elect Biden, at the time candidate Biden. We saw him weave his personal faith broader themes of faith and, and values, particularly from his own Catholic faith, but with broad sort of applicability uh, again in, in into these speeches that were billed as you know Biden's closing case or uh, you know uh, speeches that you know Biden spent hours working on himself, etc and, and faith was a part of those it wasn't these little side pieces. That makes a difference. Now, I'm interested to learn a bit more about on the state level what the infrastructure looked like. And this was such an odd campaign, you know. So we so we know that they were doing some media targeting. It's it's hard to know how much faith specific organizing was happening, and I haven't seen great reports about about this. My guess is. You know, it, it's hard in non pandemic times to sort of get staff buy in, especially, you know, the, the Biden campaign didn't hire Josh Dixon to run their faith outreach until the summer. And so it's really hard to sort of join a national campaign as it's, as many of its plans are already sort of written, you know, as it's, as it's staff in the States already has their idea about how they're going to accomplish their job and then come in and try and influence that change that, you know, maybe we'll um, well, no, this is the last episode, but, but maybe Josh will, will talk a little bit about that in some other, other form. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get Josh over on, on the sub stack and, and ask him a few questions. The, the, the point is the Biden campaign did not do everything that you could possibly imagine. Uh, that a campaign could do and doing faith out. No campaign is going to do that. But even before the election results, and I think I said this on the last episode, I felt that they had done everything they needed to do to win. And that if they did not win, you know, outside of additional reporting coming up that, you know, just uh, brought to light new details about how they were approaching faith or whatever, based on everything that we knew at the time and, and everything that I know now, you know, my my, my thought was if, if they did not win, then yes, you could critique around the edges of uh, what they did on faith and said, well, maybe if you would have given one more speech here, or maybe if they would have put up some more money there, um, y- you know, you can make those kinds of arguments. My approach going into election night was if, if Joe Biden does not win, then primarily the onus falls on those of us who thought that faith could faith outreach could make a difference that the, that they had made enough sort of investment and had done enough right when it comes to faith that you really would have had to go back to the drawing board had they lost. Let me just get this out of the way. Just one last piece on the on the policy front: had the Republicans had a competent nominee who had the ability to actually press Biden on policy. Uh, The way that the Biden campaign approached policy would not have been sustainable. But Biden didn't have to deal with that. You know, if Biden was running against, say, like a Marco Rubio, Rubio would have been talking about the Hyde Amendment every day in the debate. He would have not talked about anything else during that section when they talked about the Supreme Court. He would have forced, you know... Biden to give an answer by, by pressing the point instead, you know, what did we see in that, uh, in that first debate, we saw Trump get a huge opening when he's asked about Amy Coney Barrett. And instead of pressing in, instead of pivoting the question to press Biden, uh, Trump, <laughs> Trump says that essentially he, ha- he has no idea how Amy Coney Barrett would r- rule on Roe. Uh, no, no one does. So, so why are we pretending? He doesn't really, and he he wasn't even willing to express a, a preference for what what would happen there. Really, really, it, it is why I think <laughs> why people like David French, uh, why people like Mike Gerson, why a whole range of, of folks who have been involved for a long time in some of these issues. One of the reasons why they thought it was foolish to make Donald Trump the face of your your movement on these things, because if if Donald Trump is the principal articulator <laughs> of uh, you know any kind of moral cause or cause that's putting itself forward as moral and principled. You're you're not going to be in a good. You're not going to be in a good place. That's not gonna. That you might be able to squeak out an election like you did in 2016. You you, you might be able to get some judges on, which by the way, these judges so far haven't panned out exactly as Trump as had hoped, uh, as we've seen time and time again. Over the long term, you're you're doing real damage to your cause, and so, you know, for, for people asking. I think it's a very quick you know why wasn't Biden sort of pressed to, to to moderate, or why wasn't Biden pressed to speak more specifically to concerns of religious conservatives? well y you, you, you need someone who's going to press that case you, you need a candidate who's going to to actually prosecute that argument. yes. You know, debate moderators could have done more. Like, but at the end of the day, it's it's what the candidate is pressing. So if Donald Trump isn't willing to say what he thinks should happen with Roe, the debate moderator really doesn't have much much to work with in terms of following up and pressing Biden on the same. Uh, and so it's um, that's what happened on the policy side. If folks were looking for a presidential campaign that was about sort of a a debate about ideas then you don't nominate Donald Trump as your party's standard bearer because you're you're not going to get a debate about ideas uh, if, if if that's a setup <laughs> all right so you know we we covered some of what Trump did near the end I mean basically in in the weeks up to the election, as expected, the the temperature and the sort of bluntness of these appeals to religious voters picked up. Eric Trump said his father had literally saved Christianity. Donald Trump was saying all kinds of crazy things. Um, but at the end of the day, Joe Biden himself provided the antidote to these kinds of appeals. And he did so proactively. Oh, Donald Trump's the only one who will save the church? Well then, why is why, why does Joe Biden attend church more in a week than Donald Trump has his entire presidency? That's only a slight exaggeration, by the way. Um, oh, Trump's going to stand up for against a culture that's insulting, you know, religion. Then why is it Donald Trump who's saying bad things about Pope Francis, while Joe Biden is quoting Pope John Paul II you know, a few weeks out from election day. See, Joe Biden just did not give Trump the runway that Trump needed in order to pull out this election. And that's what we see when we look at the numbers, when we look at the results. And that's what we're going to do right after this break. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Uh, As we know, uh, Joe Biden won the election with 306 electoral votes. And he did that primarily by winning back the Rust Belt, which which was his sort of reason for existence. You know, the 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 justification of his campaign, you know, this idea that Joe Biden does not is not going to lose, you know, Michigan. Joe Biden not gonna lose uh Pennsylvania. And he didn't. You know, he, he he did what he needed to do to win in those states. He also picked up Georgia, picked up Arizona, and those two states gotta be really concerning for Republicans. We're gonna talk in this segment about exit polls. And I just want to talk a bit about, about this. So exit poll data is what it is, right? So it's um there are all kinds of reasons to be skeptical about the precision of this data. Uh, we actually have we have two sets of exit poll data immediately available that were immediately available election night, and then they've been developed as more results have come in. Uh, AP VoteCast, which had a trial run during some of the midterm elections. But this was its first presidential election of AP sort of running uh, using this vote cast system. And then the national exit polls that national media outlets basically outside of AP support done by Edison Research. Edison did the exit polls in 2016. It did it again in 2020. I use the Edison exit poll data because it's the apples to apples comparison. There are are some who would say, look, exit poll data is unreliable. We shouldn't even be talking about it. I just think we should talk about it, keeping in mind what it is. What I find funny is those who would say, like, we shouldn't talk about exit polling data, but then endlessly talk about various constituencies in this country with a level of precision that isn't more informed because you're leaving out, because you're not taking exit poll data seriously, uh, it's less informed. Like a big reason why some people are saying, let's not talk about this exit poll data <laughs> is because they don't like, because it, it runs against their priors. <laughs> uh, like a big reason why people don't want to talk about this exit poll data is because they want to keep on telling the same story that they've been telling, that they've been wrong about. But if the exit poll data can't inform what you're talking about, then there really is no... You really don't have to deal with reality. You can continue to speak for whatever population you want to speak for, and basically just rely on stereotype and rely on whatever sort of the perception is out there and aligning with that. I feel similarly to this as I um, did about attempts after the 2016 election to say, well, actually, you know, 80 percent of white evangelicals didn't vote for Trump because. You know when you uh, when you consider that only you know a certain percentage of white evangelicals actually voted, you know you got to consider all of them. And you know if you if you throw in the however many percent of white evangelicals who didn't vote at all, then actually a minority of white evangelicals voted for Trump. And it's like <laughs> none of y'all were arguing that when it was about Mitt Romney or John McCain or George W. Bush. And so you can't just change the rules in the in the middle of the game. Like if you're, if you don't want to say anything about sort of uh, people's, uh, about constituency groups voting preferences, then don't say anything. But if you're going to talk about constituencies voting preferences and, and their politics, then exit poll data, flawed as it is, is. Really essential to understanding, uh, understanding the state of play, understanding where constituencies are, uh, and so that's where we're. That's how I look at this data. Again, I use Edison because the AP data you you can't really compare that back to 2016 because there's no there's no sort of identical sort of um, there's no uh, there's not comparable data data set. Let me just give a bit of an overview nationally, and then we're going to look at a few states. Now, before we get to faith, just to give you a sense of where there were big changes and where things mostly stayed the same. So, in 2016, again, according to Edison, and I'm not going to sort of repeat that, Every it, all numbers I'm talking about are from the Edison exit polls, unless I know otherwise. Uh, in 2016, uh, women accounted for 53% of the electorate, men for 47 uh, Trump won uh, men over Clinton 52 to 41%. Clinton won women 54% to 41% for Trump. Now, in 2020, Edison shows uh, women at 52% of the electorate, men at 48% of the electorate. So... Uh, a, a bit closer, but obviously within the within the mar- margin of error, they're, you know pretty pretty similar. Th- then again, you know if you if you go just by you know the the the, the numbers here, you know that's a two point swing um, that that yeah you know, has, has significance when you're talking about over 160 million uh, voters. The difference between you know 53 and 47, you know 53 percent of that being. Women, uh, and 52% being women, that's significant. A percentage point counts a lot when you're talking about 160 million people. But in 2020, uh, 48% uh, of all voters were men, and Trump uh, carried 53 to Biden's 45%. 52% were women, and Biden won 57% of women to Trump's 42%. And so, you know, in in both cases, you see Biden uh, expanding upon Clinton's lead with women and closing on what Trump did uh, with with men, losing men by eight points when Clinton lost men by eleven, and winning uh, winning women by fifteen points when. Uh, Clinton only won them by 13. Let's look at race. And so in 2016, 71% of the electorate was white, 12% black, 11% Latino, 4% Asian, 3% other. Uh, That that accounts for 71% being white and 29% being non-white. According to Edison, and there's been some debate about this, well, one of the major re- sort of reasons why f- political scientists have been expressing caution with this uh, 2020 exit poll data, in particular, uh, is because of sort of their belief that the Edison data underrepresents white voters, uh, and so that's important to important to keep in mind. But the Edison exit, exit poll data has white voters following the 67 percent of the electorate. Uh, with Hispanic voters um, at 13 percent black voters at 13 percent Asian voters at four and so a drop as a part of overall percentage among white voters and a pickup among black and hispanic voters uh, 2020 is uh, likely the first election in which um, in which Hispanic voters, are are the largest non-white racial category of voters in the American electorate, overtaking black voters. Uh, and that's a trend we expect to see con- continue and grow and solidify in coming presidential, uh, in coming presidential elections. So in, in 2016, how the racial breakdown uh, worked, and I know these are a lot of numbers, but uh, there's been a lot of conversation about this, so, so I think it's important to, to cover. Uh, Trump won 57% of white voters in 2016 to Clinton's 37%. In 2020, uh, Trump won 58% of white voters uh, to Biden's 41%. So not much change from Trump it shows Biden picking up about four points from 2016 Uh, comes to black voters, 12% of the electorate in 2016, Clinton won 89 to eight in 2020, black voters, 13% of the electorate Biden had 87%. Trump had 12%. So in double digits among, among black voters overall among Hispanic voters in 2016, uh, Clinton had 66%. Trump, 28%. According to Edison, Biden had 65% of Hispanic voters. Trump had 32%. And then with Asian voters in 2016, uh, and again, Asian voters were 4% of the electorate in both 2016 and 2020. Clinton had 65% to Trump's 27%. And uh, Biden had 61% to Trump's 34%. And so... According to the exit poll data, and we, we we think this this holds up. We think this is this is sort of backed up. Trump was able to gain among non-white voters. Biden gained among uh, was able to close the gap uh, with with Trump uh, among among white voters. Really important facet to this election. Let let's stop here and just talk a little bit about why why that might have happened. So to start, let's go back to the point I made just earlier. the The, the time was put in, the resources were put in. the The Biden campaign clearly saw it as as mission critical to narrow their margins uh, from 2016 among white voters. The Trump campaign clearly saw an opportunity to make up for some of the losses of that they they expected among some voters uh, to be made up for with outreach to Black and Hispanic voters. And their campaigns reflected that. It's also, you know, I, I think incumbency worked in an interesting way for... Donald Trump, when it came to this election, the fears and concerns, and the the idea that he would be a, a clear and present danger uh, th- threat to democracy, that was communicated from the left from th- the moment he went down the staircase to announce his campaign in 2016 of His campaign for the 2016 election, and so, well, I do think there was a incumbency did sort of um, make some of Trump's challenges more intractable in that he, you know, doubled down on who he is in some critical ways. You know, the tweeting didn't stop; uh, he continued to use both the bully pulpit and you know policy levers in ways that harmed american communities but in in another way it was almost never going to it's very difficult would have been very difficult for trump to be as bad as the left warned he would be particularly for black and brown communities now i don't say that to understate anything that trump did just for a percentage of especially hispanic voters then, for a subset of primarily Black men, in terms of their di- their felt experience, their daily lives—not fo- not you know—not following every single thing that Trump did, but just their lives over the last four years, Donald Trump didn't live up to sort of the the worst prognostications. And so, because the rhetoric of the twenty sixteen campaign was so strident against Trump, for some folks, and some folks' minds. It was like, well, it wasn't that bad. Like, you got some good stuff done. You know, the country's still standing. So, like, what are people all fired up about? Maybe, folks, bank accounts looked better or the same. You know, the economy is basically improving until COVID hit. So, there's that. I, I do think, you know, it's pretty clear that what had become associated as democratic rhetoric around issues like criminal justice reform, policing reform... In terms of in terms of you know the debate around socialism, immigration, it's it's clear to me that with a a certain subset of voters that Trump was able to use that to his advantage, and and that that voter that some voters, including some black and brown voters, were more concerned about extremism as they saw it on the left than on the right. Now, what's also clear to me is that Joe Biden. Himself, because he had such a distinct sort of profile, not just because he's 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 white. I mean, I I I think uh, someone like Tim Kaine, uh, potentially someone like Pete Buttigieg, obviously like a a Bill De Blasio. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't think they would have been as able or effective at distinguishing themselves. Apart from sort of some voters conception of the Democratic Party, J- Joe Biden, for reasons we've talked about on this podcast, because he's been in the public eye for so long, uh, because he was willing. And this is important because he was willing to explicitly say where he did not uh, where he did not agree with some of the rhetoric and policies of uh, the, the, the left of his party that that made a that made a significant difference. And so, and so, you know, and then we'll get into this a bit, bit later on, but, you know, faith played a role and has played a role and, you know, feel like I bang my head against the wall uh, here. Faith outreach is not just about white voters, (laughs) not just about conservative, rural, uh, rural white voters. Donald Trump's religious appeals were not just heard by white voters, by conservative, rural, uh, white voters. They were heard by black and hispanic pentecostals they were heard by pro-life hispanic catholics now right like it it turns out that biden could afford to lose biden could afford to have a, a margin that was not as large as hillary clinton's with some of these constituencies and some of these states and win and so like you know in the in the after glow of an election victory you know, you, you you can look back and say, well, maybe he maybe he needed to to um, in terms of resources and in terms of allocation of what they were doing. Maybe you know he won, so so maybe this was the way he needed to win. If he would have lost, then of course we'd all be having conversations about you know what should have been done to keep the margin among Black and Hispanic voters what it was. And we want to be talking about the fact that he closed it among white voters, but he won. And so that that like puts a, a sheen on everything that happened. And, and then, you know, I do just want to say, yes, uh, some of these numbers are significant. You know, so when you look at a swing, for instance, among Hispanic voters, Biden won them by 33%. Well uh Hillary won them by, you know, 38, you know, 5 point swing, that's that's significant. A 6 point swing among black voters, you know, that's a that's a pretty that's a significant swing. We do just need to slow our roll a little bit. Some of the uh, uh some of the election analysis following in, in the immediate weeks after the election uh We're making it seem like Donald Trump pulled off some kind of a rainbow coalition. That's not what we have here. I mean, Trump Trump got twelve percent of the black vote, thirty-two percent of the Hispanic vote, thirty-four percent of the Asian vote. These are not even these are numbers that are surprising because of coastal media and Democrats' sort of very low expectations for Donald Trump with anyone but white rural voters. (laughs) And so, um, but these these numbers are not out of whack with George W. Bush numbers by any means. And so, you know, we should just be a little, I think it is right to be concerned about uh, if you're a Democrat, it's a Democratic sort of strategist, it's right to be concerned about is there something in this data that suggests if Republicans wanted to they could build a more robustly multiracial sort of working class coalition. And I do think that's there. I do think that some of these numbers do not bode well for those who think that demography is destiny, that Democrats can take voters from racial minority communities for granted Yes, all of that is there, and that those conversations need to be had, and I would just suggest those conversations need to be had uh, on the basis of black and brown voters' actual positions on issues, not what advocacy groups want their positions to be. So that's something else that we're seeing in the wake of this, which is people sort of identifying uh, that Democrats showed some slippage among black and brown voters. And so these advocacy groups are coming in saying, well, that's because you didn't do this, that we have been asking you to do, or you haven't done that, that we've been asking you to do. Well, it it turns out (laughs) that the voters that defected from the democratic ticket in uh, 2020 don't seem to be the kinds of voters who care at all. What these DC (laughs) advocacy groups have to say, (laughs) like, um, not to paint with too broad of a brush, but you look at the exit poll data and you just look at public polling data on various constituencies themselves. And then what advocacy groups claiming to represent these constituencies are out pushing candidates to do. And it's quite different. <laughs> it's quite different. And so, yes, the Democratic Party should absolutely Look, have, a, have a very close look on how to ensure in the future that the Democratic Party continues to be the home for the large majority of uh, black and Hispanic voters. That should be done in consultation and, and the pursuit of real understanding of those voters themselves, not using advocacy groups as intermediaries for understanding these groups uh, that that will not be uh, the way the way to go all right let's see if there's any other um, you know uh, just one more note on the on on the racial, you know black and hispanic hispanic men were generally more were, were more likely to vote for trump than black or hispanic women uh and so for in 2020 19% of black men voted for trump now, they accounted for 4% of the electorate, the overall electorate, 9%. So, only only 9% of black women, which were 8% of the electorate, voted for Trump. Now, among Hispanic voters, it's a little tighter. So, among Hispanic voters, 30, uh, Hispanic men, 36% voted for Trump. Among Hispanic women, 30% voted for Trump. And so, a little tighter. But... We see the same uh, or we see, you know, a similar, you know, Hispanic men only account for 5% of the electorate. Hispanic women account for 8%. So that's something else that's playing out here. If you saw Hispanic and black men voting at the same rate as Hispanic and black women, you know, we'd see um, we'd see the overall black Hispanic numbers look even more different in this election. But because... Black and brown females are much more uh, are better represented as a portion of the electorate than black and brown men. Then that plays in Biden's favor. It kind of mutes some of the some of the differences that we're that we're seeing here. Um, before we get to faith, you know, just one more thing I want to I want to uh, point out here, which is on the ideology front. So, in twenty sixteen. Uh, 26% of voters were liberal, self-identified liberal, 39% moderate, 35% conservative. Uh, among moderates, uh, Clinton won 52 to 40%, which is like, oh, okay. I mean, it's always good to win moderates. You know, you are running against Donald Trump, though. So, you know, eking out moderates is, uh, you know, not, not where you want to be, in my view. In uh 2020 liberals were 24% of the electorate so a bit of a drop moderates were 38% just a one point drop conservatives were 38% so three three point rise but again you know when it's when you're talking about differences of one to three points you know you you don't pay too close attention to that but look at the moderate vote so again in 2016 clinton won moderates 52 to 40 joe biden won moderates in 2020 64% to 34% that's 30 points Clint, Clint, clinton won them by 12 joe biden won them by 30 i mean that's that's just incredible i, I mean like really really stunning and faith. In my view, just played into that a great deal. Let, let, let me walk you through. And again, these are national numbers. We'll we'll take closer looks at. at, at I want to want to give you a close look at Georgia, and I want to give you a close look uh, at Michigan. Um, but but let's stick with national. In 2016, 52 percent Protestant, 23 percent Catholic, 3 percent Jewish. Another religion was 8%, no religion 15%. Trump won Protestants 56 to 39, Catholics 50 to 46, Clinton won the Jewish vote 71 to 23. Among those who claim no religion, Clinton won 67 to 25. Let's quickly go through these because I I, I think the Catholic number is important. The Protestant number is, I think, less helpful when you're talking about all Protestants across denomination and race. But in 2020, Protestants were 43% of the electorate. So significant drop here, uh, according to Emerson. And again, take all this with grain of salt, but 43% Protestant compared to 52% just four years ago. They have Trump winning the Protestant vote, 60 to 39. Biden winning the Catholic vote, 52 to 47. So that's like the first really serious change uh, in, in in the faith vote that I think is as I've told you all along I I, I told you Catholics would decide this election and that is a swing from Trump winning uh, among uh, four points among the Catholic vote to to uh, to Biden winning five points. So that's a nine point swing and Catholics accounted for 25 percent of the electorate, according to Emerson. In 2020, Uh, there's no Emerson does not have a vote breakdown for among Jewish voters. Um, Among those with no religion, uh, Joe Biden won 65 to 31 percent. And so um, Trump gained a bit there, according to Emerson. Uh, The other thing that's worth noting is no religion jumped from 15 percent of the electorate to 22 percent of the electorate. So what happened with white evangelicals? Uh, I believe I said heading into this, uh, heading into the election and really for for a couple of months beforehand, uh, ever since the convention, I was really confident that Biden would best uh, Barack Obama's 2012 numbers and end up somewhere between 2008, 2012. And that's exactly what he did. Joe Biden... Uh, Donald Trump won 76% of white evangelical votes. Joe Biden won 24%. So some reporters have have asked me, you know, does this signal, you know, the Democrats have turned a corner with white evangelical voters? Um, And historically, you know, the answer is no. The answer is this is more of a reversion to the norm of the 21st century after, again, (laughs) you know, uh, a historically poor performance among white evangelicals in 2016. But it's a significant swing. We're talking about a 12-point swing among a demographic that, according to Emerson, was even higher as a percentage of the electorate in 2020 than it was in 2016. So I think I mentioned on the last episode... One thing I was keeping my eye open for was whether white evangelicals were going to drop to 25%, 24% of the electorate. We did not see that. We saw, according to exit poll data, white evangelicals account for 28% of the electorate. So higher as a percentage of the electorate than they were in 2016. But what was the difference here? a 12 point swing among white evangelicals accounting for over a 5 million vote swing in Biden's direction and this showed up in battleground states as we're going to get to and so that's that's what the religious vote in this election looked like now you know typically when we get to january uh, Will get more finely tuned data. I would love to know, and really, I'm not. I'm not even expecting this data, but I am curious as to. Um, I, I, I tend to think that a lot of Biden's gains among Black and Brown voters would be disproportionately contra- uh, concentrated in among Pentecostals. So. You know, I would love to see a a denominational breakdown, especially among black Protestants. Because black Protestants as a whole, that's not going to tell us all that much. You know, I have seen some numbers that suggest that religiously unaffiliated black voters were more likely to vote for Trump than those who are religiously affiliated. Though, you know, I haven't seen anything that seems to write that in blood. Uh, Those That's just... Um, some preliminary sort of uh, thoughts that I've seen. Um, but we, we just don't have that data uh, at this point. Um, I would love to see a, a breakdown on age among evangelicals. I would love to see uh, white mainline Protestants uh, broken down. Especially at the state level. Methodists in Texas are so different from Methodists in, uh, in Ohio, for instance. Um, but, but this is the data we have now. The overall picture it tells us is that Biden's gains... Among white voters were made among religious white voters. This is this is really important. Those with no religion made up a larger percentage of the electorate. And we know that that's an overwhelmingly white category of voters. And Biden, his lead actually shrunk. There. As compared to Clinton in 2016. And so overwhelmingly white category of, of those who don't claim a religion, Biden's lead shrunk there. But he gained among Catholics, which, uh, are not as overwhelmingly white, but just as a, as a matter of raw numbers are still majority white, though a large percentage of that Catholic vote is Hispanic Catholic. And then obviously white evangelicals, he gained five million votes there. And, uh, you know, Exit poll shows Biden narrowing overall white numbers, and so that just you know, if he didn't make the gains among the religiously unaffiliated, he made the gains among those who are religiously affiliated. I mean that that that's that's uh, that's just what uh, what 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 makes sense. Um, so that's really absolutely you know critical here um, to understanding. Now these results. When we get back, I I, I want to take you through a couple battleground states that'll help you understand how these national numbers and forces sort of played out in the ground, and, and that's going to be Michigan and Georgia. And we'll do that right after this break. This is the Faith Twenty Twenty podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith Twenty Twenty podcast. And let's I want to look at a couple states. And unfortunately, the state level data is worse than that is even worse than the national in terms of how fine tuned it is. So, for instance, I want to talk about Georgia. But for Georgia, the only religious example data we have from Emerson is for white evangelicals. But the difference there is significant enough that it's it's worth us uh, worth us. Uh, talking about it. And so uh, white evangelical, so again, so this state, the state of Georgia was obviously very close. It was a state that Joe Biden won uh, by about 12,000 votes. White evangelicals uh, accounted for 33% of the electorate and Donald Trump won 85% of them. So right, you're thinking, wow, that's that's a blowout. Uh, Joe Biden got 14% of white evangelicals uh, in the state of Georgia. So, right, like he got demolished. Well, look at 2016. 2016 in the state of Georgia. Donald Trump won 92% of white evangelicals. Hillary Clinton won five. Five percent of white evangelicals. So that's a 87-point margin that Trump had among white evangelicals. Joe Biden closed that to a margin of 71 points. So still got crushed. But that's a 16-point swing among a third of the electorate. About 5 million voted in Georgia in 2020. And so, you know, just do the do the number. So about about let's say a bit over 1.5 million voters in Georgia were white evangelicals. A, a swing that size you're, you're you're talking about a swing of about a quarter million votes in in, in a in a state in a state where Joe Biden won by fourteen thousand. Just really really significant. The, the faith work that went down that state. Now, we know other things about the, the state of Georgia. We know that the suburbs of Atlanta are starting to look more like in terms of voting, like the city uh, of Atlanta. We know that black women in particular turned out big time. We know that, although you know, it, it's according to the exit poll data, the All the voter registration efforts as, insofar as they were focused on black voters in Georgia, you know, the Stacey Abrams who did valiant work. That voter registration did not keep pace with growth in other areas of the Georgia electorate in 2020. According to exit poll data, that now we'll, we'll see as we're able to match voter files if, if, if something is massively off with the, With the uh, with exit poll data, which it might be, but according to exit poll data that we have, the Emerson exit poll data, in 2016, black women accounted for 19 percent of the electorate in Georgia. Black men accounted for 12 percent. In 2020, black women accounted for 17 percent of the electorate. Black men for 11 percent. So so almost keeping pace. You could even say it's so close. Let's call it a wash. But the point is, is that, you know, Hillary Clinton did not win Georgia in 2016 and black voters were, were were not more of the electorate in 2020 than they were in 2016. Not only that, but according to the exit polls, the breakdown of the black vote was was basically a wash. So in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton won 89 percent of the. Uh, the black vote to Donald Trump's nine. Uh, In 2020, Joe Biden won 88% of the black vote to Donald Trump's 11. Now, black voters were 29% of the uh, the electorate in Georgia uh, in 2020 and Biden won them overwhelmingly. So please hear me. This victory is not even imaginable without the turnout and support among black voters that Joe Biden received in, in Georgia. My, my point is, the, the turnout wasn't such that everything else could have remained even or, or everything else could have remained constant from 2016 and Joe Biden won. Joe Biden needed something else to happen based on turnout and level of support among black voters in Georgia in order to win Georgia as he did. He was able to, able to pull that off. And white evangelicals were, were a part of that. As uh, Now, I, I should say, the the way in which race plays into this, I think, is really significant. When I first got involved in presidential politics, I had identified Georgia as a potential area for democratic growth because I knew the evangelical churches in Atlanta so well. And saw Atlanta as sort of a vanguard of a young, relatively more progressive evangelicalism than honestly in in some places up in the north and in California. I mean, and, and then I saw, believe it was in two thousand eight, Barack Obama get ten percent among white evangelicals in the state when he was getting twenty six percent nationally. And you know you just go, you know, what what's are they reading a different bible in Georgia? You know, what what's 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 going on here that you'd see that big of a difference between the national showing and the state showing among a demographic. And it it just is an unavoidable becomes unavoidable that gosh, race is really playing a significant factor here. And I should say the race plays a significant factor in Hillary Clinton only getting 5% of the vote. The way that Black Lives Matter had had influenced white evangelical voters in Georgia, to me, I think that clearly played a role. What Joe Biden showed is that you could run on a platform of racial justice pretty explicitly. You could have Kamala Harris on the ticket. But if you're issuing the invitation to religious voters, including white evangelical voters, then you could... You could close those margins. And that's what Joe Biden did. The other thing Joe Biden did, which is an underestimated sort of story of his entire run at a time when many other Democratic politicians are trying to move power away from the black church uh, uh, under the impression that the black church is no longer what it once was. So you see all these Democratic campaigns, you know, doing organizing at barber shops, you know. Uh, which is great. Like we did it in in 2012, like that's, that's, but, you know, trying to change the center of gravity a bit, or, you know, I, I, maybe I shouldn't even say that. Um, Not, not so much trying to change the center of gravity as trying to reflect what, And I think overcompensate for what they see to be a real change in gravity. You know, young black church attendance is not what older black church attendance is. They're trying to get ahead of the curve, curve, you know, sort of meet voters where they are. I'll just say, I think if you think you have to do one or the other, it's a mistake. And I think Joe Biden proved it was a mistake. I think Biden from the very start... Showed the kind of historic respect for the Black Church as a central institution uh, in Black communities that served him well in the Democratic primary and served him well uh, when it came to uh, when it came to the general election. Just absolutely pivotal. All right, let's uh, let's turn uh, to Michigan, and you know, Michigan was a really critical state for Joe Joe Biden. It was a state where the Biden campaign felt they they really had to win. Again, this is a state where we the Emerson data we only have it for white evangelicals. And so I'm I'm again I'm hoping more data comes out. We may look at the AP data here for Catholics just because Catholics are so important and it'll, it's interesting to to see what we can learn from the ap data given that we don't have emerson here but among white evangelicals again similar similar story in 2016 trump won white evangelicals in michigan 81 to 14% clinton only getting 14% of white evangelicals in 2020 donald trump only got 73% of the white evangelical vote in michigan Joe Biden got got 26%. So again, uh, almost Joe Biden almost doubling Hillary Clinton's numbers in Michigan, turning a margin of victory for Donald Trump among white evangelicals in Michigan in 2016 when they were 27% of the electorate, turning a margin of 67% among white evangelicals to uh, a margin uh, of 2020, Donald Trump only won white evangelicals by uh, forty-seven uh, again. I, I just want—I just want a margin of of sixty-seven to a margin of forty-seven among in twenty twenty white evangelicals were twenty-six percent of the electorate. It's just a huge swing in a state that was that was close. L- let's let's take a look at Catholics in in the state of Michigan, and again I'm. I'm Almost hesitant to, to do this because it's remember, it's no longer an apples to apples sort of comparison here. Uh, but because Catholic voters are so critical in, in Michigan, I do uh, l- let's just take a look. So in 2020, uh, according to AP, Catholics accounted for 24% of the electorate. Donald Trump won them 55 to 44%. In 2016, This is Emerson data now. 2016 Emerson data. Also had Catholics at 24% of the electorate. So same percentage of the electorate. Donald Trump won Catholics in Michigan in 2016 by 57 to 39. So 18 point margin Trump had among Catholics in Michigan in 2016. Uh, According to AP, Trump's margin was cut to 11 points in Michigan. So again, just, just to give you a... A window into the kinds of why this outreach mattered, how these closing of margins, in some cases, you know, flipping and overtaking Trump among some of these religious demographics, the kind of difference that that made. Now, you know, we don't have this, again, as finely tuned data for some of these states as I'd like. Michigan is also one of the Michigan is fascinating in so many ways strong conservative black Protestantism, diverse minority Christian sects from the from the Chaldean uh, community outside of Detroit to strong Orthodox communities in Michigan uh, You obviously have a robust Muslim population in Michigan and so Michigan it really is one of those interesting, states religiously where you could see a confluence of factors and different kinds of outreach sort of join. Just one more interesting, you know, fact about Michigan that indicates sort of the way the evangelical vote played is we saw a massive swing in Kent County that covers Grand Rapids, which as some of you will know, Grand Rapids is just hugely important in Evangelicalism, a lot of Christian publishers there, several Christian uh, colleges and universities, uh, Christian nonprofits. That gives me an indication that something particular was happening among re- religious voters. That isn't that that can't be explained away by other demographic factors. You know, it wasn't just an education thing. It wasn't just a race thing. You look at Michigan and and you could see faith playing a distinct role. All right. So that's, I mean, we could go state by state. We're not going to do that. Would urge you to dig through the data yourself. I, I'd stay tuned. Pew usually has among the most significant sort of um, unpacking of the religious vote in the election should come in. I would expect in January, if not earlier, would encourage you to keep digging through this stuff and trying to get a sense of exactly what played out. Hopefully, I gave you a bit of a good start and gave you some tools uh, for, for for looking at these numbers. Um, and you, know, you could find the Emerson and the AP poll data, uh, both at the national level and state level. New York Times, Washington Post, CNN are all good places to look for that data. And it's organized in, in a way that you can kind of flip through it. All right, when we come back, I'm just going to recap things and, uh, and uh, send, send you off after this break, the last segment of the Faith 2020 podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. And I uh, can't tell you how much I enjoyed doing this uh, for and with you all. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, my producer, Bo York, for sticking with us and sort of the unpredictable recording schedule and making sure that uh, you all had your episodes uh, with as quick turnaround as possible because these episodes track with current events more than most other podcasts. And we um, And we tried to... Release episodes when they would be uh, helpful uh, to you, especially during the campaign. Um, I would like to thank all of my guests uh, throughout the podcast. I'm just so thrilled that we d- delivered, I think, on the promise to bring you key voices who were actually going to be influencing the election. Uh, we had Rev- Reverend William Barber. We had Senator Chris Coons. Uh, we had Josh Dixon, who, who, uh, led faith outreach for the Biden campaign. We had, uh, um, we had Reverend Gabe Salgero, who was a, a key voice throughout this election process, including, uh, speaking at the Democratic convention. Uh, we had top, uh, top journalists, including Darren Sands, including Aaron Haynes, who, uh, launched a new publication that i think had a, a great 19th which i think had a great impact on this cycle and so just thank you to all of uh, all of the guests of the show look we set out to track faith under the in this in this presidential election under the idea that faith was going to be important like it has been in every presidential election this uh, in the 21st century and we wanted to help make sure as much as we could from this sort of uh from from the plot of land that we have that major aspects of this presidential race were not going to be overlooked because of religious illiteracy because religion makes people uncomfortable because they just can't see religion operating uh, in the world and hopefully we contributed to that i do think it was Important, particularly in this cycle, and it's going to be critical moving forward. I can say from experience, life and culture, politics changes when you have a Democrat in the White House. Things can appear to be different than they are in reality, (laughs) depending on who's in power, by what they emphasize. I hope that you won't forget some of the lessons that we learned over the course of this podcast Uh, living in a country uh, that could elect Donald Trump to be president, uh, walking through an election in which we elected Joe Biden. We are both countries. That's just so important to remember. We were a country that could elect Barack Obama and elect Joe Biden over the last four years. And over the next four years, we will be a president, we will be a country that could elect Donald Trump. Republicans in this country can win ignoring broad swaths of American voters. that That is our political structure as it's set up today. Democrats cannot. It, it, that is, it, you, you could say it's unfair, although when people say it's unfair, what they're saying is, is that it's not actually wrong to ignore people. We just wish we could do it too. Uh, I, I actually have a different opinion. Uh, I think the presidential campaign's ought to be oriented towards all the public not just the 50 plus 1 that you need to win the popular vote and the 270 you, win, you need to win in the electoral college and i especially think governing has to be for the whole country that doesn't mean that you're going to please everybody all the time that doesn't mean that you're not going to make decisions that are going to uh, buy the the nature of the of the a problem that's been presented to you, uh, a decision that's going to benefit one group more than another, I mean, that that's governing. But we we need people in public leadership who are able to honestly say to any voter in the country that I am governing in a way that I think is best for you and best for the country. We have not had that the last four years. And frankly, there are many people on both sides of the aisle that don't seem to want that at all. This podcast has talked a lot about, I, I, I wanted to be really clear from the beginning of this podcast that this was a podcast to help people understand what was happening in our politics, not necessarily sort of a podcast that was aimed at arguing for a particular moral vision or sort of uh, faith outreaches. I would like to see it. This podcast has been focused on interpreting reality from the perspective of someone who's actually ex- who's, who's who's done the work who's been on the inside as, as i've had the opportunity to be but i do want to close with moralizing a little bit and that is there is a point at which the strategy and the morality meet <laughs> and that is that we better start acting as if the rest of the country exists not just as an electoral measure But to uphold our government itself, to uphold our democracy itself, to reinvest meaning into our social contract, to divest power from the polarizing, intentionally polarizing, intentionally destructive forces out there. That we all sort of reject and condemn without acknowledging the way that our own actions actually provide them the oxygen that they need to do what they do. And this is not just the responsibility of politicians. This is our responsibility. Joe Biden ran the campaign he did because of who he is, because of the values that he has, the way he was raised, what he's learned over his time in public life. He also ran that campaign because of the read that he had on what the American people would reward and what they would not reward. As president, we need to make sure that yes he's being held accountable to the convictions and values and everything he laid out on the campaign but as president we we need to make sure that he's responding to an environment which encourages his better angels <laughs> this this is what we can't this is what we can't miss yes we absolutely need a president who appeals to the better angels of the american people but a president needs an american people who appeal to his better angels in order to be able to act on them. That, that is the bind and the promise of what we've gotten into with a representative democracy. Uh, in this podcast, I wanted to walk you through some of the mechanics of that, some of the strategy of that, particularly when it relates to faith. And, and I hope you enjoyed, enjoyed the ride. It, it was quite a presidential election with all kinds of things that we could not have foreseen. Yeah, next month, we will be inaugurating uh, the first female vice president, the first black vice president, the first Indian, uh, uh, the, the, the first um, vice president of uh, Indian ancestry. We will be inaugurating Joe Biden. And then the work continues. The Republican Party has a lot of important decisions to make. They're making some really bad ones right now. We'll see if Trump being out of office gives them an opportunity for a reset. But at some point, leaders in that party who know better need to stop waiting for the perfect arrangement to form itself so that they could do what they say they want to do and realize that as leaders, sometimes you have to move those puzzle pieces in, into the arrangement that you need them to be in. Moving forward, this is the last episode of the Faith 2020 uh, podcast, but. Um, I won't give too many details. Here's, here's, here's what I'm thinking about. I have just been blessed with really extraordinary and diverse friendships and acquaintances and just people that I've been able to come across who are in different walks of life, but I think bring with them a real thoughtfulness about the way they approach not just work, but, but living in general. And so in 2021, uh, what I'd like to do is bring in a long form some of those conversations directly, uh, conversations with some of those uh, some of those leaders, some of those friends uh, directly to you. And so we'll be releasing more details in the next year, but uh, uh, the faith 2020 podcast will be no more. Uh, I am working and planning towards, a long-form interview format, almost kind of open-ended conversations with folks I think that you should know and that I think you'll learn from and I think I'll learn from. And so stay tuned for that. The best way to stay in touch with me, Twitter is good, um, Michael at Michael R. Ware, but also our Substack, which has just exploded over the last few months. Uh, we send out, multiple times a week content to political leaders, religious leaders, uh, uh, journalists from around the country who are diverse in themselves, united by the fact that they get this newsletter. (laughs) And we'd love to have you join them. Uh, You can visit reclaiminghope.substack.com to sign up for that. Again, that's reclaiminghope.substack.com. I think that's it. I, I really want to hang with you. Feels, uh, this has become such a part of my life, uh, talking with you all. It's, it's, uh, it's so hard to say goodbye. Uh, <laughs> I'm tempted to sing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> should, should I sing one more time on the podcast? Oh <laughs> uh, no, no, we're going to leave it there, but maybe, maybe Bo will put in some boys to men. Uh, at the end of this episode Just as uh, As as one last Sort of technical Addition uh, Before he signs off from the Faith 2020 Podcast as well Hey, thank you so much for being on this journey With me, we've made it To the end of the election You've been listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast This is Michael Weir Thank you It's a ho- 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 ho-